Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, we are continuing uh, a sermon series in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, we've called this series Origins because really in these chapters we do get such uh, foundational information about who we are and where we came from, who God is and His intent for our lives. And so, Carissa, you have been hanging out on that step long enough. Uh, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Our reading today is Genesis 4, 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and keeper, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desires contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true and it's given to us in love. So in our story this morning, we meet two brothers, uh, Cain and Abel. These are the first two characters in the Bible story that are born into the same world that we are born into. Remember Adam and Eve, uh, we've seen, were made uh, by the direct creation of God, placed in a garden temple in Eden, where they are made to enjoy this perfect communion with God and with one another. They were born into paradise. And yet Cain and Abel are born into the same world that we inherit a world marked by brokenness and tragedy and sadness, a world that is not as it was created to be. I got a feel for uh, the not-rightness of the world this week. Several of us in our church did. Uh, We have a, a community outreach team as a church that plans and works on ways for our church to reach out to our neighborhood, to our community. And they had an idea that I never would have come up with, but I thought it was a great idea, uh, to do what they were going to call a hot dog handout. 
Uh, so we were going to go up to the laundromat where some of our members work, and uh, just as people were doing their laundry in the neighborhoods, give them a free lunch, a hot dog handout. Uh, but uh, you may, like many of us, have opened the newspaper uh, this week and seen that there was a man uh, heading up a Christian ministry not too far from us, actually in this uh, neighborhood, whose ministry was called Hot Dogs for Hope, right? We, didn't, we don't think we infringed on a copyright, but it's close. Um, who was exposed for doing a very similar ministry, uh, feeding uh, those who were hungry with free hot dogs, uh, but that he had used this as a way uh, to ingratiate himself to vulnerable members of the community and was found guilty of sexual abuse and assault. And uh, so I got an email from Willie uh, and from this team saying, hey guys, I think we ought to maybe cancel the hot dog handout uh, because of this event. And I think that was a wise decision. And yet you go, man, this is not the way that the world is supposed to be. A group of people just seeking to do good in their community, a group of people seeking to uh, offer food for the hungry, uh, shouldn't have to Google the name of what they're trying to do to make sure no one has used this to prey on the vulnerable. And yet in the world we live in, even good things uh, can become twisted and can become opportunities for evil. You hear a story like that, and you just go, man, what is wrong with us? What's wrong with us as a people where something like this can happen? Where even uh, bearing the name of Jesus, putting a Christian stamp uh, on your organization is no guarantee uh, that it's not uh, a vehicle for evil. What's wrong with us? Well, the Bible tells us what's wrong with us. Uh, what's wrong with us, according to the scriptural account, is sin. And this story is a story about sin. It's a story about how the sin that began with Adam and Eve in the garden, listening to the voice of the serpent, plays itself out, sin in their family, in the life of their descendants. Sin is what haunts us and what plagues us and what breaks us. Now, it's hard to talk uh, in this day and age about sin and evil. Right? When you talk about sin and evil, those words are thought to be old-timey and regressive. Right? Surely we've moved beyond such things. We can diagnose what's wrong with us and use sociological terms or psychological terms. But the Christian contention is that those things are merely symptoms of a deeper disease. That no other language can adequately describe the depths of what's wrong with this world. You have to have some word to describe and to use in the face of wartime atrocities, government and business corruption, slavery and violence and trauma. You need a word that's deep enough to capture what's wrong with the world. And it's got to be deeper than just maladaptive behavior, dysfunctional upbringings. That at the root of all of that in the biblical account is sin. That sin is a language that can capture all of what's wrong with us, both communally culturally, socially, and personally uh, in our lives. And so we want to start by looking at sin. Uh, what is sin? And the first thing we see in this passage uh, is that sin is destructive. That sin is a destructive power in the world. Look at what God says to Cain in verse 7. He says, If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. 
So when God goes to describe sin to Cain, he uses the image of a predatory animal. He says, sin is crouching there at your door, like a tiger or a lion ready to pounce and attack. And its desire is the same. Its desire is to devour you, to consume you, to so take over your life that you no longer can live a genuine human life. Sin is destructive. Sin is more uh, than just an action. Sin is more than just a rule that we break. Sin is a power in our lives. It is a, it is, in this way, it's described as a living force, that it's a destructive power, that it's more than just the little compromises that we make, the decisions that we make. It's a force that once we begin to give into it, takes on a life of its own that ultimately ends in our destruction. These verses tell us that all sin is destructive, that all sin has victims. Right? We don't typically think that that's true. We tend to think that, you know, yeah, the big sins, murder, theft, adultery, these things have victims. These are crimes that lead to real people having real consequence. But other sins are victimless crimes. Our pride, our greed, our private lusts, our self-righteousness, and our judgmentalism. Right? They're sins that are launched in the heart and nobody has to know about them. We can hide them. We think that they are sins that do no damage. And yet God says to Cain that sin is a crouching animal at your door. That even the littlest opportunity, the smallest uh, doorway, leads it to pounce. C.S. Lewis wrote something about this uh, in his wonderful little book, Mere Christianity. I'm going to quote him at some length. He says, Uh, speaking of this issue, he says, that explains what always used to puzzle me about Christian writers. So before he was a Christian, this puzzled him about Christian writers. Says they seem to be so very strict at one moment and so very free and easy at another. They talk about mere sins of thought as if they were immensely important. And then they talk about the most frightful murders and treacheries as if you had only got to repent of them and all would be forgiven. But I've come to see that they are right. What they are always thinking of is the mark which the action leaves on that tiny central self that no one sees, but which each one of us will have to endure or to enjoy forever. One man may be so placed that his anger sheds the blood of thousands, and another so placed that however angry he gets, he will only be laughed at. Hear what Lewis is saying. He says, take two men. Both might have anger in their hearts, and one through the amount of power that he's given in his anger might be able to kill thousands of people. And another person might have so little power in their life that no matter how angry they get, they're only laughed at. But the mark on the soul is the same, that it's coming from the same place. To put this uh, a little closer to home, at least to my home, what he's saying is when I lose my temper with my children, when I discipline them out of anger, that the difference between me and someone like Stalin, who murdered thousands of people that got in his way of exercising his power, that the difference between us is one of degree, not of kind. We're both angry men dead set on lashing out against people who defy us. 
Now, I might lose my temper and yell at a seven-year-old who won't, won't obey, and he might imprison and send his enemies uh, to a prison camp. But it's coming out of that same heart, that same quest for control, that same anger if that control is violated, that they launch from the same origin point in the human heart. Lewis goes on to say, Each has done something to himself, which unless he repents will make it harder for him to keep out of the rage the next time he is tempted. It will make the rage worse when he does fall into it. Each of them, if he seriously turns to God, can have that twist in the central man straightened out again. Each is, in the long run, doomed if he will not. The bigness or smallness of the thing seen from the outside is not what really matters. Sin is crouching at the door in each of our lives. Right? The metaphor of a crouching animal, what is a, why does a crouching animal crouch? A crouching animal crouches to stay out of notice. Right? It starts off, it's an effort of the animal to stay smaller until it's too late. To stay imperceptible until it's upon you. And sin works this way in our lives. It's a small murmur, a little bit of judgment, a little bit of lust, a tiny desire for order and control in our world that starts off almost imperceptibly small until it traps us. Jesus uh, attested to this in his Sermon on the Mount. Remember when he says, you have heard it said, do not commit murder. But I tell you, the one who harbors anger in his heart is guilty of murder. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that everyone who harbors lust in their heart has already committed adultery. He's saying that they come from the same source. They flow from the same fountain. And they both lead to the same place. Now, there certainly are some sins that are more damaging than others, right? It is better to be angry than to murder uh, for society, right? If you don't think this is true, ask yourself of your marriage, would you rather your spouse lust or commit adultery, right? Certainly, you'd rather them commit a little bit of lust and then repent immediately, turn away from it before it gives birth to a full-blown infidelity. Right? It's better to recognize the inward movement of sin, to repent then. But they do come from the same place. Their differences not of kind, but of degree. So sin just isn't the small wrongs that we commit. It's not just the rules that we break. It's the force in our life that if we let it, will drive us into behaviors that we never imagined ourselves capable of. Right? It'll drive us to things, to outward sins that take away our lives and the lives of others. So sin is destructive. But it's not just destructive. We also see in this passage that sin is subtle. Here you have Cain and Abel. Two uh, brothers born into the same family, grew up with the same mom and dad. They had similar careers. We're told that Cain was a farmer like his dad. And that Abel was a rancher. So while Cain uh, was working the ground for crops, Abel was uh, raising animals. So they're both in agriculture. They're both doing the same kind of business. I guess everyone was back then. So they're in the same family, same type of business. And now here they are at the same place of worship. They find themselves at the same altar, making sacrifices to the same God. 
Friends, we like to think uh, that it's easy to distinguish between the good people and the bad people. Right? Everyone thinks that they know who the bad people are in the world. We all manage to define it in a way that doesn't catch us, interestingly enough. Right? The bad people are those people. Those people are the ones that are out there who think this way, who do these things, and the good people are in here. But here you have two brothers, same family, same upbringing, same jobs, same worship. It's not as though uh, one brother is living a vastly different lifestyle than the other. It doesn't say, does it, that Cain was out uh, drinking and drugging and womanizing and gambling up all night, while Abel was volunteering and giving his money away and helping old ladies across the street, right? We're, we're not given that broad brush stroke between the good brother and the bad brother. And yet, one brother meets with God's judgment in his worship, and one is accepted. Why? Right? This is a question that puzzles us when we come to a passage like this one, because it quite honestly just doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Right? One guy, one brother is a farmer, and he brings crops. Another brother, brother is a rancher, and he brings an animal. And God says to one, this is good, and the other one, he sends away dejected. Why? Well, the answer, uh, we see it most clearly in Hebrews 11, where the author of Hebrews tells us that Abel made his offering by faith, while Cain did not. So the origin of their worship came from two different places. One was motivated by faith, and one was motivated by something else. There's a clue in the text as well. If you look at verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Now, this is okay. There's nothing wrong with making a grain offering. In fact, as the Old Testament goes on, some of the offerings that God's people are going to be commanded to make are offerings out of their crop. So it wasn't that he offered crops. What was it? He brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So Cain brought some, and Abel brought the first. And that seems to be the difference, is that by faith, Abel offered him the first of his livestock, and Cain gave God some of his crops. Now, if you picture yourself as a farmer uh, in the ancient world, to give the first of anything that you got was always an act of faith. Because your harvest, whether it be of crops or of animals, your harvest was your income, right? That was what you were going to make for that year. And so what a prudent person would think is, well, I'm going to see how large the harvest is, and then I'll decide how much to give. Right? I'll see how much grain I gather into my barn, and then I'll give 10% of it to God. Or I'll see how many calves are born to my herd, and then I'll decide what a reasonable amount of offering is. Right? God might be in for a big year. Right? If God gives me 30 calves, I might give three or more to Him. But if you gave the first calf that was born to you that year, you didn't know if you were giving the first of 20 or the first of two or the first of one, right? So it was an act of faith to give what was first, trusting that the God who gave you the first one was going to take care of you for the rest of the year, trusting that God was owed not a prudent, measured response based on how much He gave to you, but by a response of absolute worship, saying not just the first one, but all of them, 
belong to you because everything that's good comes from your hand. So Abel responds in faith. You know, friends, there's only two motivations. There are only two reasons why anyone worships God. Why anyone shows up, why anybody puts money in the plate, why anybody serves. There's only two motivations that have ever gotten anyone to do something for God. One is out of a response to God's love and grace. Confident that He is a God who loves us and who's given Himself for us. And the other is in an effort to earn God's love and grace. Those are the two motivations for worship. Two people might do things that from the outside look almost identical. They might attend the same church. They might get up and read their Bible and pray in the morning and have a quiet time. They might give to the church. They might even serve apparently selflessly. But one gives out of a heart that's been captured by God's mercy. That looks at his life or her life and says, everything that I have, my very life, my life with God, my forgiveness, all of it is a sign of your grace. And the other one says that if I give enough, if I do enough, if I serve enough, if I pray enough, maybe then God will accept me. And we see in Cain's response to God where his motivation lies. What does he do when God critiques him? We're told that he gets angry and he gets depressed. He gets jealous of his brother. His response shows that what Cain was doing the entire time was comparing his life to his brother's life. He didn't want to worship God. He wanted to worship God better than his brother. He didn't want to be uh, in communion with his God. He wanted to be in competition with his brother. What gets at him is not that he somehow missed in his devotion to God. What matters to him most is that his brother's been accepted while he's been rejected, that his brother's gotten ahead while he's gotten a bit of correction. And he shows himself in this to be not unlike another older brother in the Bible. Remember the story that Jesus told about a man who had two sons. We're told that the the younger brother asked for his half of the inheritance and he went out and he squandered it on wild living while the older brother stayed home and dutifully obeyed his father, did everything that he was asked of, was obedient to the nth degree. And then when the younger son comes home and the father rushes out to greet him and welcomes him and loves him and embraces him and kills the fatted calf to throw him a party, the older brother is seen sulking outside the party, saying, why should he get accepted when I don't? Why should he get the Father's love after everything that he's done? I've worked hard from you my entire life, and I've gotten nothing. And so he sulks and he grumbles outside the party. And Cain sulks, and he grumbles in his anger, and he's consumed by his jealousy, and then he does something about it. His anger and his self-righteousness and his bitterness goes from being an internal grumble to an external murder of his brother. The crouching sin consumes not only Cain, but through him consumes his brother as well. And so the story of the Bible, we said the Bible says uh, from beginning to end that what's wrong with us, what's wrong with us in our world is sin. 
And the central driving storyline of the Bible is how God will deal with sin. How God will work to remedy this problem that's taken hold of us in our world. How, as we saw last week, He will work uh, through the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. How He does His battle with sin. And we see here in Genesis chapter 4, in very broad strokes, the way that God will do it throughout the rest of the Bible. That God deals with sin through justice and mercy. That he does battle with sin through justice and mercy. Mercy and justice. First, let's look at his mercy towards Cain. I love the way that God moves towards Cain in his sin. Right, first, just in his sin of his self-righteous anger. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? And why has your face fallen? Right, remember, this reminds me of those scenes in, Genesis, in the previous chapter, in Genesis chapter 3, when God goes pursuing Adam and Eve after they eat the apple. Where are you? What have you done? Who told you that you were, that you were naked? Right, that God goes to them asking questions, looking and inviting their response to him. And now he goes to Cain asking questions. Why are you so angry? Why is your face downfall? And literally, why are you depressed? Listen, when God asks you a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. Right? He doesn't, it's not because he doesn't know what you've done. It's not because he doesn't know what's in your heart. It's because he wants you to acknowledge what's in your heart. Cain, why are you angry? Do you know? Do you understand what's going on inside of you? Do you understand the the crouching nature of sin in your heart? Why are you depressed? He's inviting Cain to look at it and say, well, it's not because of you, God, and it's not because of Abel. It's because of me. Right? It's because of my sin, my anger, my self-righteousness. He goes to him again after the murder of his brother and says, where is your brother Abel? And Cain uh, is unable to respond to God's question. He is unable to say and answer God about why he's angry, about why he's depressed, about where his brother is. Instead, he may offer one of the worst excuses, uh, one of the worst defenses of anyone ever. Now, Adam and Eve set the bar fairly high for this after eating the apple. Uh, When Adam said to God, the woman you gave me, she gave me the apple that the serpent gave her. So really, I'm, if you think about it, I'm pretty good here. So Adam had set a pretty high bar in defensiveness and blame shifting. And yet here his son shows that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. When he asked God, am I my brother's keeper? I, I don't know where he is. That's, that's an able problem. I'm not my brother's keeper. Yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. right? You are your sister's keeper. As God's law becomes more further uh, explained in the Old Testament, we're told that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves, which means to so place our well-being and our happiness and our life inside that of our neighbor uh, that we treat their life, their safety, as though it's like our own. And so it's a pathetic excuse to say, am I my brother's keeper? Because your brother, your sister, your wife, your husband, your parents, those are are your nearest neighbors. 
Those are the neighbors that we are to be most invested in. Their well-being and their flourishing and their life and their happiness. And yet Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? He refuses to acknowledge his sin. Instead, his heart is hardened towards God. And yet still, even in the face of this, God gives Cain grace. He gives Cain incredible amounts of grace. Now, there is judgment, right? He sends Cain further into exile. Adam and Eve and their their children have already been uh, expelled from the garden. And now Cain's told he has to even go further out, east of Eden. He's going to live his life as a wanderer in the wilderness. So there's judgment on what he's done. And yet God protects his life. I mean, imagine the the irony here. Cain says, you can't send me out there. Somebody's going to murder me. I mean, that that is what we call irony. Right? There's bad people out there that might murder me, like I just murdered my brother. There's people that are going to do that to me, and I don't deserve that. And God is gracious to him, even in the midst of his foolishness and his sin and his rebellion. He says, no, no, you are going to be a wanderer. You are going to be in exile. But if anyone touches you, I'll avenge your death. I will protect your life. He puts his grace on Cain. He gives Cain his grace by giving him time, right? He gives him time to live, hopefully time to grow, time to repent, time to turn to God in faith. He delays his judgment uh, in Cain's life, giving him time. This is, uh, stories like this one is uh, what gives rise to a doctrine that we often call the, the belief in common grace, common grace. That means that every single one of us lives our lives inside of God's grace, regardless of whether you respond to Him in faith or not. That means that if you're here in this room and you are, you, either you have deep questions about Christianity or if you know you don't believe this, right? If somebody drug you here against your will, this means that even in your unbelief, even in your doubts, you are in God's grace that He holds you in His mercy and that He protects you. Now, there is in each of our lives, there's a call for us to respond to that grace. Right? The ultimate insanity of of, of sin, the insanity of sin is that somebody could receive God's grace and still say no to it, still spurn it. Say, God, I know that even when I was running from you, you still looked out for me, you took care of my life, you still gave me... uh, you know, the blessings of this life, you still took care of my needs, and yet still I want nothing to do with your saving grace. But Cain is given grace. We're not told if he repents, but God delays his judgment on Cain so that there's a season where he's given an opportunity to repent and to return to God. But friends, God's justice uh, is not delayed forever. Right, We do, each of us in our lives, live our lives in a window where He delays judgment in our lives. Right, The fact that any one of us doesn't get struck by lightning on any given day is a sign of God's mercy. But God's patience with sin does run out. Look at what He says to Cain. After Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Look at verse 10. And the Lord says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. 
There's this idea in the scriptures that the, the victims of injustice in this world, that their cry reaches the ear of God. Right? We're told uh, later on in Genesis, uh, when God responds uh, in Sodom and Gomorrah, when he, when he comes down and goes to visit there, he tells us that it's because the cry of the poor has reached his ears. That the cry of those who've been afflicted has reached his ears and he's going to do something about it. We're told when he, when he takes notice of his people in Egypt and their slavery, that their cries have reached his ears. That, they've, that he's seen their slavery even though there were moments in their life of slavery where I'm sure it felt to them like no one saw their oppression, that their cries certainly weren't reaching the ears of Pharaoh or their slave masters, yet God heard them. And now here we hear that Abel's blood cries out from the ground to God's ear and that it provokes his justice. And friends, that is good news. It is good news that we live in a world that is ordered by a just God who doesn't overlook the cries of the oppressed. Right? In this world, Cain slays Abel. The Cains of this world always slay the Abels of this world. The rich get rich on the backs of the poor. The powerful consolidate their power at the expense of the powerless. The privileged cling to their privilege at the expense of the downcast. And in this world, it seems to go pretty well for them. If you were to just pause the story of the world at any given moment and ask yourself, is it better to be Cain or to be Abel? Is it better to be the powerful unrighteous or the suffering righteous? If this world is the scoreboard, you would say, I will take Cain, thank you very much. But the good news of God's justice is that this world is not the scoreboard. But that the cries of the abused and the vulnerable, that the cries of the victims reach the ears of God, that they don't cry into an abyss wondering if anybody hears them, but that the blood of all those who have unjustly been persecuted and suffered in this world will find justice when their cries reach the ears of a righteous God. That is good news. It is good news for the poor. It's good news for the suffering. It's the good news for the broken and the oppressed. It is also terrible news. It's terrible news because if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit we're far more like Cain than we are like Abel. Right? We have to admit, don't we, that we are far more often self-preoccupied, angry, judgmental, cold-hearted, prejudiced, we are far more like Cain than we are like Abel. And so the part of us that wants a just world, a well-ordered world, a world that God sets every broken thing right, has a problem to deal with. Because we have to admit that we are part of the problem. That we are part of the guilty. And that God's justice, that is such good news for this world, is terrifying news for us. Because we've committed sins big and small. James, uh, the Apostle James, in writing his letter, uh, writing to a church, a church not unlike this one, summarizes their sin. And you know how he does it? He says, you kill and you covet. Right? You are a congregation full of murderers. 
And it's likely that that group of people was just as upstanding and good-looking as you guys. Right? That on the outs, there likely were not literal murderers there. But what he's saying is in the, we're all caught in the same net. We want, we covet, we lust, and when we don't get it, we kill. We wound in our anger. So how do we deal with the good news, bad news of God's justice? Well, there's better news still than God's justice. Because there was one like Abel but better, who came to live his life in a world full of Cains. And when these Cains met this better Abel, his righteousness, his holiness, his love infuriated them. God's, the intimacy with which he spoke to his Abba, his father, the grace that he extended to sinners, drove them mad with self-righteous anger. So mad that they crucified him. And the good news, if you have a Bible, look at Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 23 and 24. He begins earlier by saying, You have come to God, to the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cries out to God from the ground for justice against Cain. But the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. A word that speaks not of God's justice and judgment, but of his mercy towards us. Friends, every one of us, every one of us has blood that speaks a word against us. Right? If we were sitting not in a church, but in a counseling office, and we were just telling each other our life story, I know that there are relationships that you've broken. There are, there are relationships I've broken. There's betrayals that you've committed. There's hurt that you've inflicted. Not to count all of the half-hearted worship that you've offered, the selfishness and self-righteousness that you've harbored. There is a chorus of blood that cries out against us. And you have to have a better answer than I didn't mean it, than I meant better, than it's not my fault, than I didn't understand. There has to be blood that speaks a better word than the blood that speaks out against us. And the blood of Jesus, we're told, speaks that better word. It speaks a word of mercy and forgiveness and love. But more than that, Jesus' blood cries out to God, not just our mercy. I think sometimes we think of that. Like, I sin, and I apologize, and the Father is about, he's there, and he's ready to judge me. But then Jesus comes in and says, oh, please forgive him. Be nice. God the Father, could you please just be nice? Can we sweep this little bit under the rug? Can we be forgiving? But Jesus' blood cries out not just for baseless mercy. His blood actually cries out for justice. He appeals to God's justice. He says, yes, Dave and his sin is wicked and foolish. He deserves justice. And his justice has been laid on me. I have already been punished for all of his sin. His sin was laid on me at the cross. He was crucified with me, and I was crucified as him. And so, Father, your justice has been satisfied. The demands of your holiness and your righteousness have been met. 
Because Dave's sinful life is hidden in me. His unrighteousness clothed in my righteousness. His unloveliness clothed in my love. Father, you already, your justice is satisfied. And your mercy can run free. Remember, there are only two reasons to worship God. The only reasons, the only fitting reasons are either because you know that your life is hidden with God in Christ, that in and of yourself you are not righteous, you are not good, you do not deserve God's pleasure, but because of His grace you approach Him in gratitude, in love, in mercy. You love Him and you love your neighbor. And the other is to try to appease an angry God to try to earn your way towards his love and his favor. And it's only when you recognize that you're far more like Cain than you're like Abel. It's only when you realize that it's the mercy and justice of God through the sacrifice of Jesus that you are right with God. It's only then that your heart can be changed to really live a life like Abel. To live a life that does give to God, not out of the little bit you have left over after your needs are met, but they can give to God joyfully and abundantly out of the first fruits of your life. Only then can your hard, canish heart go from grumbling against your neighbors to offering your life to your neighbors in love, to truly being your brother's and your sister's keeper. It's only when you realize that you are covered in the love and blood of Jesus, only when you hear the better word that he speaks over your life, that you can live that kind of life of true and abundant and whole worship and love. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Lord, we thank you that you are the mediator of a new covenant, that you are the high priest who stands at the Father's right hand, offering your life for ours, offering your perfect sacrifice for ours. Lord, we acknowledge that we are like Cain. Even our best days, even our worship is tainted with selfishness. Our view towards our neighbors is so often more one of competition and posing and self-righteousness than one of love and mercy. And so, Lord, we're asking you to forgive us our sins and to change our hearts. Lord, help us to hear the better word, the word of the gospel, the word of your grace, that speaks life and love and forgiveness and mercy over our lives. Help us to find our very life as those who are clothed in Christ, hidden with you. Lord, from that place, let us live lives of wholeness and worship. To live lives where we give to our God and to our neighbors uh, selflessly and without self-protection, without hoarding, without greed. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would receive our imperfect offerings, that you would cleanse us, that you would free us from our sin. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org. 